0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: That sense of pain that oftentimes leads to the desire for justice, maybe in the flesh, uh, revenge. It's one thing to suffer from the bad choices that we make, but what happens when somebody else makes a bad choice and the fallout is all on us? We are exploring that today as we look at surviving the fallout of other people's choices with celebrated author Cynthia Rutte, by the way, her most recent book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Cynthia, let's talk about this. Um, You know, it's it's one thing for us to be injured by the poor choices of others, but then suddenly we feel as if oftentimes we're forced to pay the price and they walk away scot-free. Example out of the book, you talk about the couple who has spent their marriage life Raising kids, they've made all the sacrifices that loving parents do. They've been there for all the school plays, all the sports games, driven them to uh, uh, you know band practice and soccer games and all of that, and helped them mend uh, you know the broken uh, bones when that happened as well. Uh, Paid to get them through college, were there for them as they were getting married. All of this, and now parents feel as if it's their time. They're going to enjoy uh, their time together. They're going to make plans for what the rest of their life, or the second phase uh, post-empty nest, looks like, and suddenly they find a major change. They have a child with children um, who, from some poor choices, has decided they either can't, will not, or are incapable of caring for grandkids, and now all of a sudden the agenda has changed. Mom and Dad thought they were done raising kids, and find out no, we're about to go into it in the second phase of our life. We probably won't see the golden years of retirement until we reach our early eighties. Wow!
2: Mm-hmm. And they're not only raising grandkids; they're raising hurting grandkids at the same time too. So they have this drain on their finances, this drain on their their energies this drain on the quiet that they maybe felt like they had paid the price to, to desert to earn. And here here are these young ones under their care who are changing their daily schedules and changing everything about the way they thought life was supposed to look at that time. They're watching their friends. These grandparents may be watching their friends um, go on golf dates and travel more and all those dreams that they might have had. Invest a little bit more time in their hobbies than they were able to do while they were raising their own children. But then add to that that tremendously heavy gravity-like layer of concern for these children who are hurting because of the their parents' choices. And that is is all pulled into this big pool of, of disappointment and the cost that these grandparents are having to pay and that is not an uncommon story we we hear about it often these days so there again is one of those situations where it it can be a life or death situation or it can be one like this where they're just expected to do something, and they do it gladly because they love these children and they want the children to be protected and cared for and to know that they are loved in the middle of the the uh, aftermath of what their parents have done, or if there there may not have even been a second parent parent in the in the picture at the time. So here we are in the midst of this kind of a daily burden that's placed upon us. Even if to to the public we would say, "Oh, it's not a burden; it's a joy to care for our grandchildren." It's still a drain in many ways. There is a hope there in the middle of it, and, and one of the one of the layers of hope is is that these grandparents oftentimes have to kind of. Um, almost force themselves to make sure they're not missing the beautiful parts, the beautiful moments in the middle of that story. They have an opportunity to put those children to bed at night and know they're cared for, fed well, they're safe. They have the opportunity to watch some of those moments in their grandchildren's lives that they might not have had if the grandchildren were living with the parents somewhere else. And even though those might seem like uh, small consolations, they are precious and they do help to pad the pain of what they're going through and to, and, and the, another thing that enters in here that I'm, I'm not sure I even made clear in the book, but even that idea that the sacrifice that they're making will be rewarded in a huge way by the God that they serve and in the lives of those children as they grow.
1: And you know, ironically, and you know, some are going to say, "Well, that's just sort of a pat answer." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like "a time heals all wounds." Sometimes we come up with these uh, these sort of stock or catchphrases that we pull out in the different mom- difficult moments of life. But there is a reality that, uh, as you point out in the book, Jesus, as uh, depicted in not only his ministry on earth as uh, evidence of it, but certainly within uh, the writings of Isaiah, Jesus is a man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, he he knows what suffering is like. He is another one who suffers at the hands of others. In fact, here's an amazing thing, to put this in perspective. We sometimes, as we're discussing tonight, Cynthia, have to pay the price, pay the penalty for somebody else's poor choices. A few, if any of us, ever sign up for that willingly. Few of any of us ever say willingly, I will take on this. I will pay the price on behalf of a son or a daughter or a spouse or a sibling that's made some poor choices here. And yet, Jesus did so willingly and knowingly, that he ultimately paid the price for our sins, Mm -hmm. our mistakes. And so if there's anybody who can really relate to what we're experiencing, it's Jesus himself, isn't it?
2: And I think that's to our own survival in the middle of these things is knowing that the depths of God's understanding are limitless and that Jesus very well does know what that feels like to be paying a penalty he did not deserve on behalf of people that he loved. I was reading just today in Isaiah. um, It it had a beautiful description of someone who feels like they're in such a vulnerable place they're an easy target they're easy prey that that the troubles that have come upon them have made them feel like they're standing on a high hill all alone and you can imagine that if you're in the middle of a war what that would be like to be in that position and that's oftentimes what it feels like then to us that um that the verse in isaiah 30 uh, 18 says nonetheless the lord is waiting to be merciful to you and will rise up to show you compassion the lord is a god of justice happy are all who wait for him there's so much in that short verse so much there For us to know that God is a God of compassion. He longs to be merciful to us. He will rise up. He will show us his compassion. And that he is a God of justice. And the joy lies in for those who will wait for him to exact that justice as we lean into him, as we as we lean into this this one who not only knows our sorrows but healed them to, to the very depths of his being and cared so much about them that he would provide a way for us to know freedom from what, what we should have borne in our own selves, but also that he would care enough to come alongside of us when we're hurting. He comforts, not, but not only comforts, he binds up those wounds that we have, the Bible tells us. And yeah, sometimes those those. Even a verse, a scripture verse can sound like a bad answer. And that's not what we're trying to, to say here. We're trying to just point ourselves, and I'm talking to myself even as I say this too, point ourselves to the source of our true hope. Sometimes it's a bare, like, fingernail-like grip that we get on the hope that will, that will help get us through these times. And we're, we're not saying that this is a, that it's easy by, Any stretch. In fact, I tried very hard in the book to not make any of the readers, the potential readers of the book, feel that they were being um, cast that their that their despair was being um, disallowed, that that it was being made light of. Not in any way. Um, There's a beautiful verse in Jeremiah too that where God is saying, "Because my people are crushed, I'm crushed. Darkness and despair overwhelm, and they." certainly do i I use this verse often from jeremiah they treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing all is well all is well they insist when in fact nothing is well this is the same god the same god who says he is the god of hope is telling us i i get it believe it or not i understand what this pain is like that you're feeling and i have a huge heart of compassion and understanding.
1: So here's the, here's the big challenge as, as much as you're suggesting that we do not want to be dismissive the pain the disappointment is real. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes I think one of the biggest roadblocks to hope as we're discussing is this root of bitterness. When we come back after a brief time out, we'll ask Cynthia to give us some insights in terms of how do we go about like removing that ugly weed in the garden that seems to just come back again and again and again and takes over everything to the point where our our eyes go to the weed first instead of seeing the beautiful rose that sits behind it. How do we go about getting to that root of bitterness and cutting it out so that hope can spring forth? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to our conversation. Best-selling author Cynthia Rukti with us today. Her latest book, by the way, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Abington Press, and, of course, you can also get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and through uh, Cynthia's website, which is, get the right piece of paper here, Craig, CynthiaRukti.com. That's spelled Cynthia, R-U-C-H-T-I. All right, let's talk about doing some gardening. Um, Boy, in the middle of these experiences, Cynthia, as much as we're trying to find hope, hang on to hope, that root of bitterness can sometimes go very, very deep and be that major blockage that really prevents us from being able to get victory. How do we go about finding it and cutting it right at the root?
2: I think if bitterness helped at all, Jesus would advocate for it. He would have told us in his word that, yes, let bitterness have its full work in you. And he's saying so much the opposite of that. We, we know very well the kinds of things that don't work and where we're not going to find hope in the middle of, of our pain and our distress. One, one clear thing is that if we let our pain define us and mold us into something that's uglier than the circumstances are, um, hope loves light, but if we pull the curtains around ourselves and label ourselves as the broken one or the too young widow or the motherless or the addict or the jilted, we 're making it harder to find that hope that our souls crave. Same thing happens with our taking it out on others. If we challenge ourselves to think, who is it that really grew more hopeful? by taking out their pain on other innocent people. We wouldn't be able to find anyone. If we allow the bitterness and the disappointment to dictate what our life is going to look like, not only is the person who caused the pain getting yet another victory, especially if it was intentional, if that pain was intentional, but we're draining the energies that we need for survival. We can tell when bitterness has taken root if our thoughts go to the action against us or the mistake that was made or the, or the person who got us into this position more often than our thoughts are going toward hope and healing and what's my next step. If we get mired in a place where we're not thinking thoughts like, what's my next step or God help me take the next step, then we know that bitterness has probably taken a pretty deep root within us.
1: <laughs> this is something that a lot of people struggle with. And well, we in do. addition to that bitterness, there's also that sense that we call it justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes it means revenge. Uh, we want to somehow settle the score. Uh, I made reference earlier to the notion of the drunk driver who uh, may be in the process of their going out for a nice party, gets on the road when they shouldn't. They hit us. We have either suffered permanent physical Injury, maybe even loss of life, they get up and walk away scot-free.
2: And even on top of that, it could have been hit and run that not only did they get away scot-free in their own physical injuries, which were none or minor, but they may have even left the scene. And we're left with all of this. And there's no one caught in a way, no one who's paying a price, even legally, for what has happened to us If when we look through the stories that God included in his word, it's remarkable to see how many times it's a situation just like that where someone makes a decision, someone makes a bad move, and then here are all these people that are trying to live in the consequences or the fallout or the aftermath of those Things, what just knowing that God thought that those stories were worth including in His Word gives a certain measure of hope in the middle of this. Also, but honestly, when we look at the the um, the hurting one, let's take someone who is, let's take ourselves out of the picture and imagine that it's a friend of ours, and we're trying to go and comfort that friend. We know that there is very little that we could do or say. So the words are so inadequate at a time like this. And certainly if we try giving them a three-point plan or um, six ways that you can find hope again in the middle of this, and here, here's this specific antidote to bitterness, we're going to be met with resistance as we try to do that. But like Job's friends did, if we go and sit beside the person... That's when Job's friends were being the smartest and the most comfort. There was someone that I was speaking with just the other day that was just at a loss as to how to help their their friend who was just mired in this pool of bitterness, and every word that came out of her friend's mouth was full of venom toward what had been done to her. And at the time... It was it was a hard thing for her to go and sit beside her friend and listen to that, but it was in the listening and the spilling out of it to this trusted friend that eventually she started to, to un, unload enough that she was able to allow just a breath of space for something else to come in and fill that spot up. We rehearse our pain sometimes to an excess. Sometimes we rehearse our pain in the the bitter feelings that we have, the resentment that we have so much that we grow hoarse. And the voice that comes out when we're that hoarse is even more despairing. And and despair feeds upon despair. It begets more despair. It's not helping our situation, but we feel like it's the natural thing to have happen. It may be natural, but it's still a decision. When waves of bitterness are coming at us, naturally coming at us, if we stand in the way and we don't move out of the way of that wave of bitterness, we shouldn't be surprised if we get swept off of our feet by that wave.
1: And understanding, I think, at the end of the day that God is still ultimately in control mm-hmm. can be very reassuring. Sometimes in the flesh, and the secular, they say, well, there's karma. And you know? mm-hmm. what goes around comes around, whatever, whatever the phrase de jour is. At the end of the day, none of this escapes God. Certainly the pain that we are suffering has not escaped Jesus. He can likewise relate to our pain. And at the end, God is in control of everything, and I think that's the biggest place where we can lean. And as we lean on him, then we begin to surrender that bitterness and say, okay, God, I'm not in charge here. I'm not gonna meter out justice. I'm just going to trust you and move forward and not allow this bitterness to end up consuming me. Because at the end of the day, the other person that you're angry or bitter toward, they don't even know it. They go la daw da about their business. Sometimes they have no clue that they've even injured you or wounded you as deeply as they have.
2: You know, it's interesting that... If, if we're tempted to pull away from God at a time like that, we are pulling away from the only one who has any power to affect change in our circumstances or in us. We're pulling away from that hope expert, the one who created it and maintains it for us at his own expense, and the one who remains our only source of lasting and genuine and tenacious and durable hope so pulling away from God at a time like that is going to allow that bitterness to take a deeper root within us and then just like the weeds in the garden the ones with those deep horrific tap roots that go down so far that you can chop at it with a hoe and it and you're going to only remove the top and then it will creep right back up again stronger than ever before but you have to dig with a shovel and sometimes dig way down deep to root that out and when we're in a place of such vulnerability when we're so tender in the middle of that pain that the best that we can do is just that simple act of leaning toward him rather than leaning away from him and when he sees that happening he responds to us and he and he is like a like a parent when a child gets a it's an injury, the parent's first response isn't, I told you not to ride your bike without your knee pads. The the parent instead opens his arms or her arms wide and welcomes that child into his embrace. Then, when the child is comforted, the parent says, okay, let's take a look at that knee. And that's so the way that God is with us. We've seen this before. We know it to be true. But it's such a picture that I, I long to have become so rooted in my own life that it's my first response. It's my default response, is to realize that when I'm hurt and injured, God is flinging his arms wide open, longing for me to come running into his embrace. I lean against him. He comforts me. And then we'll take a look at the injury and see what that was.
1: Surviving the fallout of other people's choices. Our thanks to Cynthia Rukti for being with us tonight. Her latest book, by the way, is called Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul, newly published by Abington Press, available at the usual suspects, including Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Thanks, Cynthia, so much for the time.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, Some... I think troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America, and that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization, that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who Um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school. They've been baptized there. They've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years. And then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level. And it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today? where they feel, perhaps, that the church is not adequately addressing their needs. Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and, most specifically, how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and, most importantly, Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co author is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a Ministry Director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey,
3: thanks, Craig. It's good to be with
1: you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from Vacation Bible School, Children's Choir, Youth Church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important. And yet in recent years, there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents. I no longer feel compelled. And they're done. Why?
3: Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at in a, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics, like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, So as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, There's a lot that we could point to of what's not working. That's where we're so excited about this new research in the book Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults?
1: And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches, of course, uh, 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 across the country, across denominational lines. You've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing the, quote, unquote, better job at keeping or retaining young people?
3: Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, uh, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool, young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people.
1: Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks, that we used to do historically a good job as the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs, uh, typically what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced Families, We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're in a, in a way in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps in this day and age made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on In a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them?
3: Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh-huh. So what, what we've landed on uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? we found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's
1: also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing.
3: Very much. And unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that, that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well, that as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, If a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range.
1: Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that Part of the service, typically very early on, came and the children were, quote unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that well, you're trying to block me from something or or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies. You have to be embedded a certain time. We understand that part of this is good parenting. But part of it, I think, lends itself to that sense of of being um, not only isolated, but almost and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake, it's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens.
3: Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, Uh, Those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of (laughs) we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents, understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something, and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had... Uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations.
1: But yet that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth. And let's be honest about it. As you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm. Jack Benny's age plus <laughs> a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, uh, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that, that is inherent to, to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that, And giving credence to that and acknowledging that instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the conversation, our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this Jake just before the break um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older there's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young and yet there seems to be a sense and again this is not in all churches but in some churches that we we kind of isolate young people and we we suggest that well, they're not ready they're not mature and therefore they're not as valued in some ways and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion and, and is the church missing the boat here. Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways?
3: Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is... Um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not, the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront.
1: Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, and you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II and and so on, they say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything, and yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, uh, do good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet better than it was when they found it or inherited it at and I, and I just have to wonder if we if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself yep. I think young people could look at this and say wow I want to be a world changer and you've just handed me the keys
3: Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, When we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it, that lines up very much with what we found in our research.
1: And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly, from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other.
3: Yeah. Is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, You know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And 20 things were saying, You know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill. Uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed, and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 no. Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old, uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church, and the church needs young people, and when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing.
1: And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated, This is not expensive, it's not complex, because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about, and we we, we can't afford that kind of money, we can't build that kind of program, we can't hire that kind of talent, but wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches. Although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace, as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline.